I'm Dustin Zahn, and this is Trainwrecks. On the show this week, we have Mike Parker. Mike's based in North America, who by day teaches art at a college level in Buffalo, New York. At night, he can be found traveling the world, DJing his special brand of techno music in clubs, festivals, and raves across North America, Europe, and Japan. The aesthetic or the theme behind Mike's music is easily one of the most recognizable in techno today. The hypnotic and minimalist approach to his music often results in tracks featuring nothing more than a synth and a kick drum. Because of that, whenever you hear one of his tracks, it's undeniably Mike Parker. Uh, No one really tries to imitate it because it's just his style. And I think when you have achieved something like that in music, it's kind of a special thing because not many producers can kind of hold that ground and call a certain sound their own that nobody really wants to compete with. Uh, So kudos to you, Mike, for having that. Uh, In this episode, we're going to talk about the reasoning and the process behind that approach, and uh, we're also going to discuss Mike's sort of resurgence that started about five or six years ago with the various releases on labels, one of them including mine, uh, and also some DJ mixes, and eventually an album on Prologue. Uh, We're going to dig back into his music history a bit, we'll discuss a little bit of his life as a college professor. Uh, his recent live set at Berlin Atonal, and what he's feeling as a DJ today. Uh, Enjoy the show. All right, so I was going through your discography. Um, You know, I've had a lot of records of yours for years, Mm -hmm. but I needed a refresher when I knew you were coming over because some of them I couldn't quite remember the names of and some I still play regularly. And uh, I kind of noticed things that... I hadn't thought about in the past, like even let's say four or five years ago. And that's that, you know, your signature sound was pretty evident from the beginning or, you know, you could see the early traces of it from your first few records. And then by 98 or 99, I would say it was not fully formed, but fairly obvious. Would you agree with that? Or I agree with that. I think that uh, for me, the, um, I guess the records that came out in 98, 99, uh, there was uh, on my label uh, geophone number four and number five I think it was sort of like around that time that I think I finally kind of nailed my sound I mean that's I mean from my point of view so I I agree yeah um, you know because so, some of the older ones obviously because it was the 90s um, you have tracks that uh, are a bit more on the ravey side. Obviously, That's it's right. faster. That's right, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious. I want to get your take on the, the the rave days at that point. But, um, you know, a couple of the old ones that I used to really like was like uh, Resonator 1 or the other Tribit record that had some acid in it. Um, I guess, you know, acid was still a pretty big thing at that time. So mm-hmm. did you... At, were you just trying to make anything at that point or still kind of finding your way or... I think what was happening was, at least um, with the the in the late '90s, you remember um, there were a lot of producers, a lot of techno producers who were kind of imitating um, the Jeff Mills Purpose Maker series. Mm-hmm. You know, really fast tempos um, and these records that were um, 
uh, the so-called functional techno records. And, And then he had like prime distribution and all that they were promoting a lot of these kinds of uh records and i mean that was okay for a while but it it made techno sort of monotone and 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 i was getting bored of that and i wanted to do something that had like a slower tempo Mm -hmm. um and i i just wanted to slow it down i i felt that with a slower tempo there was more space Definitely, you know, between the notes and and your reverbs and your decays, and I, I just that's just how I kind of naturally did it, and I was even doing that. I think, I mean, even some of the earlier records, I started to slow things down because I felt that, um, like you said, like the, you know, the rave days, you know, there was a point where the tempos just started to go higher and higher. Oh, yeah, it was extreme. Yeah, and then to the point where, you know, that's when you had um, the, you know, jungle and then drum and bass form out of that, out of the hardcore. So it was like, that's okay for them, but I, I felt that, you know, I wanted to uh, slow it down. Yeah, I understand. And then I noticed that also at the same time, um, things got a lot more stripped down also. I mean, even your first records, despite having more going on than they do now, um, as far as layers go, it's, uh, it was already kind of a stripped down sound, but now, or I will now, especially in 2016, but even back then you had almost stripped it down to just a kick drum and whatever synth patch you were using at the time. Yeah. Was it, did you have like a re-influenced by some of the minimal movements, whether it's Robert Hood or like the, forcing stuff or was that just a conscious decision on your own part um, i think i was influenced um well i was influenced by a lot of stuff like um like you know you mentioned robert hood and then um like the steve bicknell cosmic mm-hmm. records like the lost stuff that was coming out and um i think there were um a lot of influences that sort of fed into this, and I, and, and I don't know how far back you want to go, but I mean, I definitely had a kind of a history already. Um, you know, I had previously released records um, with an industrial band. Oh, did you? We were doing, yeah, we were doing like, you know, really, really. Um, abstract music like music concrete stuff like i mean i i you know i'm i'm 49 mm-hmm. okay so i was born in 66 um i went to college in the mid to late 80s mm-hmm. and i was a student um i was an undergrad at carnegie mellon university in pittsburgh and at that time um i mean carnegie mellon is known as um, a computer science school and engineering school. They also have um, a college of fine arts. They have um, music, drama, um, architecture, and an art department. I was in the Mm -hmm. art department, and I took classes in the music department at that time. Um, There was a guy named uh, Roger Dannenberg who actually... if I remember this correctly, um, you're familiar with the program Audacity? Yeah. Um, I believe he wrote that. 
Um, oh, okay. So he teaches in computer science there at Carnegie Mellon, but he also taught classes in electronic music. And at the, I mean, this is I mean, this is going way back, right? Yeah. So um, I remember. I mean, I was a kid. You said this was the mid-'80s at this point? Yeah, this would be like 86 or something okay. like that. I mean, I was like a sophomore in college, um, and so I took an electronic music class because I had already, on my own, you know, like, you know, I had bought synthesizers and had been experimenting, but I took the class, and it was... You know, I remember we had, like... A, we actually had reel-to-reel tape recorders. This is how far this comes from. <laughs> <laughs> and then and we had a we had a uh, a broken ARP twenty six hundred, which still made sound, but it wasn't completely functional. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, you know, I was doing, you know, really weird, um, tape based music. You know, splicing it, um, cutting things up, and doing this weird music that involved atonality and noise. And I also um, collaborated with some people in the music department. And um, so I think, I mean, going way back, I always had this um, affection for weird noises. Mm-hmm. And yes, a, definitely a kind of a minimalism. There's no doubt about it. Um, when I was... Okay, so... I was a kid in the 70s, and I was a teenager in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And in the early 80s, um, I was growing up in... I was born in Michigan. I was Actually, I was born on an Air Force base in Oscoda, Michigan. Um, my dad was a captain in the Air Force. He, he later went into uh, civil aviation. So we moved around a little bit at first, but I, my teenage years, my formative years, were in... I grew up in a little suburban town in Maryland that was just on the Severn River um, feeding into the Chesapeake Bay. So I was right in between Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and Annapolis. Okay. And I was able to, you know, being in that area was kind of interesting because I was able to pick up some of the college radio stations. There was one in Baltimore I believe it was Towson State University. They had a really good college radio station there. Um, and then there was another one. And um, this one was closer by. It was, a, it was a local community college. And I remember my, my older brother once, he, you, know, he, 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 you know, he sort of tipped me off. He told me, you know, there's this, there's this weird radio station. It's run by some college students. And they play this music that no one else plays. Right, mm-hmm. and so I checked it out, and um, I got addicted to college radio. Now mm-hmm. here I am; I'm like a 13 year old kid, yeah. and I used to listen to. There was this guy; he had a show. Uh, Mike Filament had a show um, on this radio station. It was the um, it was the uh, the community college in the area. It's, it's no longer there. Mm-hmm. The radio station is not um, current, but. Um, so he had a show and he would play at that time really obscure music. Uh, and here I was a 13 year old kid and I'm listening one night and I'll never forget this. Um, so he goes on the air and, uh, so he says to his audience, he goes, you know, I'm going to play something. 
and you're probably not going to like it. Which I, you know, I, I thought that was like kind of like a sort of like an arrogant thing for mm-hmm. him to say. You know, like he, but he would do that. He would say stuff like that. He had this kind of like attitude about him. He's like, you're not going to like this, but I'm going to play it. And um, so I'm like, whoa, you know, this is a challenge. You know, yeah. I, I have to hear this, right? Exactly. And then he, so he says, well, so I'm going to play. Um, I'm going to play this track by this group, and they're called Throbbing Gristle. Mm-hmm. And so he plays this thing, and it's like this, um, you know, this noisy, repetitive rhythm. I mean, it sounds like a, I don't know, like a train or something, and some guy screaming and chanting on top of it. And I loved it. <laughs> uh, do you remember? Do you remember which one it was? I actually, yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's the track by Throbbing Gristle called Five Knuckle Shuffle," All right. which yeah. which they used to play live a lot. This was I remember the version too. They played it was it was from the seven inch track because I went out and bought it after this, and um, you know from that point on. Seriously, like I was hooked, mm-hmm. and also Throbbing Gristle was like this band that kind of had this. At that time, they had a kind of a sort of a do-it-yourself mentality, yeah. and it was listening to their music that sort of convinced me that that I could try. That yeah, could, like there's a possibility or something. Absolutely, yeah. and and um, they always had this sort of um, this attitude where. You know, you can if you are creative, you can you can do this. Yeah. Um, and I always felt like, you know, I always wanted to like thank them. Um, uh, of course, Peter Christofferson has has, has passed yeah. away, but um, uh, one of these days, I really should just contact them and say, "Hey, guys, you know, you kind of had a big impact on me." Well, maybe maybe they'll listen to this. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be cool. I mean, if 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 they were. Um, but anyways, um, I, I think it really goes all, it all goes back to, to that. To I mean, those there's, there's so. definitely like with what I'm doing with the sound now, I think it has something to do with, with those. I, I definitely see like a rawness to it all in, in your sound and like, uh, I mean, it definitely has the flavors of, of Throbbing Gristle for sure, but you you basically started getting into and making weird music from early on. Um, and we covered, and then you slowly stripped it down even more. Basically there was no percussion in a lot of your stuff by like, say what, 99 roughly. Uh, which at that point, like you said, was still pretty, that was like the first rave boom in the United States. I mean, everybody refers to this EDM thing right now, but it was, it was pretty happening back then. I mean, so that was kind of a daring move at that point where, I mean, you you seem like a guy that is genuinely not concerned at all with what's relevant or what's not or getting ahead in the industry or stuff like that. So I'm guessing that you didn't really care if these records had a big impact back then or, I mean, what was your kind of feelings on that? Because obviously you knew going in like this wasn't going to be a, a a big rave hit or something, so to speak. I wanted well. I definitely wanted to do um, a certain kind of sound, and I realized that it was difficult sending demos out to other labels. Mm-hmm. And I decided to start my own label where I could just do whatever I wanted. Yeah. Um, it, you know, previously I had I had released a few records, um, 
because after, yeah, let me back up. After college, I moved back to Maryland, and I was living in Baltimore in the early 90s, and there were these guys um, who formed a label called Defective, and they were a big part of that scene. Like, like I, like you yeah. were saying, like you know, the rave scene really. I would say really kicked in in the in Baltimore. Like I would say, around that time, ninety two, ninety three, um, and then so I started recording for them, and that was cool. Um, but I think what I wanted to do was something even more personal, um, and something that emphasized you know, the analog sounds and maybe de-emphasized say like, you know, the not, rhythm section. The, yeah. And the 909 patterns that, you know, we hear so often. So, um, not that I don't use those, but I, you know, a lot of times I'll pull back on that and let the other sounds predominate. That's just sort of my, would you say that still holds true today? Sorry for cutting off, but like <laughs> the not focusing on that percussion, is that something you've just chosen to stick with? Yeah, because that's the sound I like, and and um, sometimes you know I, I hear people say, Mike, you know, why don't you add some hi hats to your track? You know, but see, I kind of, I mean, the way I look at it is, as a DJ, you know, there's certain points in the set where um, you can use my tracks as a kind of transition mm-hmm. to other things, and you can bring the percussion back in. It might with another track. Almost like a tool of sorts, but not devaluing it. Because a lot of people think tools, they think generic or something to that extent. Yeah, know? and I don't, yeah, I don't, you know, when I, when I hear that, it's a little frustrating when I hear people say, when use that sort of terminology as applied to my work. I, and I don't, like, like, I had read recently somewhere someone called me like a loop artist, which I, I really object to. I think that's totally, that, that's, that's just not true at all. Yeah. That's a, that's, I think that's a crude way to describe it. Well, I mean, that's like saying Jaws is a fish movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, when it comes down to it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously, you Okay, let's not call it... So he referred to it as what? Loop techno, he said? Or loop DJ? What did he call so it? Loop techno, I think. Okay. Someone, someone I said mean, that. Of course, your style focuses on repetition a lot, but is, there's also the qualities of, like, Focusing on that that trance or hypnotism that comes with it. I mean, it's it's definitely a more reduced thing. You know what I'm saying? So, like, if you're a person that is either just completely disinterested or can't really differentiate subtle details, it will appear as such, maybe. But again, that's when we're really breaking it down unnecessarily. Yeah. You know. And it's not it's not just the sounds. I mean, structurally, I like to do this thing where a lot of times I'll have a phrase and instead of it being divided by four or two it'll be divided by three or five or seven and then it cycles um in sync with you know, over top of what we would think of as the four four beat mm-hmm. I, I really like this idea i like it for blending um with other tracks and i like the idea that it's not centered on this idea of predictable phrasing mm-hmm. like you know there's there's a certain gratification sure that you get from a 4/4 track where the hi hat comes in at a certain time mm-hmm. but i think also that if you use tracks that are a little more abstract the dj can 
work to make those buildups and crescendos by virtue of how they mix it with the other tracks. Yeah. And that's and and I think that's interesting. Um and that's what I've always um kind of wanted to do. Um and sometimes it really works and sometimes um it's it's hard to deal with, you know. Yeah. Um you know, there are there are some cases where I'll go back and listen to some of my tracks and think, "Oh, I wish I changed this." You know. Yeah. Well, we all have that. Right. And and but but not only that too though, but all my stuff is recorded live. Mm-hmm. I don't do any multi-tracking. I never have. Um, I just rehearse it, um, and I make some recordings. And sometimes I get it right um, in the first one or two takes or something. Or sometimes it takes all day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, all those tracks are live. Everything I've ever done is just like live in the studio. You know, I mix it to my ears the way I think it should be balanced, and I just record it live. Wow. So it's kind of a one-and-done situation. Like, there's no it three really weeks is. later, you go back, you're like, oh, I should change this. You're like, well, I that's can't it. do it. Yeah, the wow. only thing I can do is maybe ask the mastering guy to, um, you know, EQ it in a certain way. Yeah. If I if I think the the kick drum is too loud or something, but you know, there's only so much they can do. I mean, I've just sort of learned to. I mean, I've become acclimated to my studio in such a way. I think. I mean, I've been using like the same monitors for like 20 years. Wow. You know? So, I think that I'm able to achieve a balance. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people, um, when it comes when, when it comes to production and monitors, there's that's a whole it's a science you know there's people who think you got to have incredibly expensive monitors there's people that have budget monitors when it really comes down to it at the end of the day there's two things one yes nice monitors positioned correctly will help you but two and i think it's most important knowing your monitors is um and your room is probably the most important aspect some of us are lucky that we have the ability to try a track out um, on the weekend when DJing and then you kind of know, oh, when I'm in the studio, I have to compensate by adding in more bass or less bass. So, you know, these little tricks, I better remember this next time. Unfortunately, some people that don't get to play out, it's harder to get to know your room. But at that point, you got to check, listen on car radios or in your iPod or, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And um, so, yeah, when you, like you said, you've had the same monitors for 20 years, I'm guessing you've moved in the last 20 years or yeah. maybe not. Yeah. So once you, you know, the monitors and once you know the room, you kind of get an idea and you're, you're comfortable with recording that live. So, yeah. So, but you know, some other things that you kind of remastered and re-released in the past couple of years, like the, some of the voice print stuff or whatnot, those are since they're earlier, Mike Parker stuff, it's um, you know, you got some vocal bits in there and whatnot. Does that mean that you, might revisit those kind of ideas at some point, or are you just completely all right with not going back to that as we as we chat now? I mean, of course, maybe you could change later, but you mean like there's some vocoder stuff in those tracks? Vocoders, like, or you know, some of your older stuff had like vocal samples or yeah. or or maybe pads. I don't remember, but I mean, do you ever see any of those elements maybe making an appearance in your music, or have you just they they do? There there's there were some illustrations. Um, um, yeah, actually, I, I, I want to bring back some of that. Um, I like the idea of 
manipulating a voice mm-hmm. through a vocoder um, and using it as an instrument and not as a um, not as like a lyric or something. Mm-hmm. Like you can take a little snippet of something like um, part of a word, um, even just a syllable. And run it through and make a sound like proto language is is like that. There's yeah. a there's a there's a there's a voice thing in there, and it's it's like a little piece of a word. And I used to do things where, like, I would take the vocoder and I would just speak into it, like I would mm-hmm. just like read off a manual or something, yeah. and go through it and take a little piece of it and maybe slow down the pitch or something and make almost like make a bass sound out of it. Yeah. So um, I think probably that's going to happen again, um, you know, when, I'm, when I feel inspired to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, let's see, the last, I mean, you had a, the last I actually heard from, I saw you at the Berlin Atonal Festival when you did your live set. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see yourself doing more of those, or is that kind of a one-off special thing? Or No, I'm going to do probably some more in the future. I, I did one at Labyrinth in Japan okay. um, right after that. Um, what I would like to do is expand it and do more stuff that's improv. And you know, part of the... I mean, I, I would call like last year that was the first phase of it. Mm-hmm. Part of it, there was two things I needed to do. One, I needed to um, make the footprint of my setup very small. Yeah, because that I was that's getting, half the battle. Yeah, so that was a big part of it, and also find a way to duplicate some of the old tracks from years ago. Um, now that I've done that, I would like to do some more things where I mix in something that is much more improvisational. And I've been looking, you know, there's uh, just recently some um, some things have been released, like that new Moog, um, the Moog Mother 32. So that yeah. that's, I mean, I'm looking at that and watching the demos and listening. I'm thinking, you know, this really is perfect for me because it's the right size mm-hmm. and... Um, it's the kind of setup that I'm familiar with. So I think that might be the next step is that I'll add that into the the rig. Mm-hmm. I don't really... Are you a modular guy or are you not big on it? Or? I, I'm, I'm more of a semi-modular person. Okay. And my favorite synth of all time is the Korg MS-20. It's on every single yeah. record I've ever made. Um, I like the idea of modular um, components as expansions of my full synthesizer keyboards. Yeah. I like the idea of just you know being able to approach something and immediately get a sound out of it. So I've been, although I have been buying some modular things lately, I have not, I, I've slowed down a bit. Yeah. Because I find it to be um, this kind of weird thing where you end up buying stuff um, that you end up not using as much. Whereas when you have a, a, a keyboard, like for example, the very first keyboard I ever bought, which I still have in my studio, is the Korg Monopoly. I bought that way back in the 80s when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Still have it. It's been, you know, I've had it serviced once or twice. And I know that synth. Like I can get whatever I need from it immediately because I've had the time. 
Yeah. And I feel like the the problem with with my at least my approach to to the modular stuff is that I feel like um, there's always this um, idea that oh well now I should buy this and then I don't really spend enough time learning the other things that I bought. Yeah. Um. So I but there are certain things that I have within my modular setup that I that I now couldn't live without. Um. This um. I mean, for the tech people out there, yeah. There's a Vermona, um, um, the performer, or it's oh, it's it's the LFO thing with the oh, four yeah. the four LFOs yep. that are in sync, um, the formulator. Yeah, like that thing, I couldn't live without. Now, I mean, I really like that, and I use that to write a lot. So, mm-hmm. so there's a good example of one. I, I, I guess you know, I'm just not. Um, so you're into it, but you're just not going crazy with it. Yeah. Like, which is, I think, a healthy position because they don't call it Eurocrack for a reason. I mean, that, you know, <laughs> it gets expensive. It's an addiction to buy all those modules. And, it, and it, Yeah. And then again, like it's, you know, there's, again, there's that, um, that idea that, uh, oh, well, now I should buy this next thing. Um, and then you kind of, move on and you don't really spend enough time with the other components that you buy. And that's my fear of it, I guess. That's, I think everybody's susceptible to that, you know, and, or it's uh, for people that can't afford the gear, they'll, they'll acquire plugins for their computer, you know, and just piles up and they don't really learn something inside and out. Like you said, you learn your gear, but, um, so let's, uh, change around a bit. We talked about the live setup. That was the last time you were in Berlin, you're now back in Berlin again this winter. Uh, it's not a coincidence. Because you're a teacher, you come mainly during the summer and on winter breaks. That's right. And um, so you're in the middle of your, well, towards the tail end of your winter break now before you start classes again. Um, where have you been so far? I was in Bari, Italy. Amazing food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it was great. Um, I was in... Um, well, I was, I played at Trezor Mm -hmm. just a few days ago, I guess. Um, and I played in Lyon, uh, France. Mm -hmm. Um, and tomorrow I'm in Leipzig. Excellent. So you had a nice little, uh, tour. How long have you been here? Two weeks almost? Uh, like, yeah, like three weeks, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I always like coming here. Yeah. I mean, so we're, when you first came over, we were talking about that, um, it's become more of a regular occurrence for you to come over to Berlin and kind of base yourself here. Um, do you see it as a like the place that you could always end up making your base within Europe, or is there another city where where you're thinking I've been to Berlin enough? I should be based out of here for a while. I mean, if I was twenty years younger, I'd move here. Yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, you know, I do have a career as a teacher. Um, I'm, for those that don't know, um, yeah. I'm a university instructor. I teach art classes and because it's art, mm-hmm. it complements what I do in the music scene here because, you know, I get support from my colleagues, you know, mm-hmm. they, they understand that I'm doing something creative. I mean, it would be similar to, I mean, if I was a painter, 
and I was exhibiting in different cities. I would have to travel there. I would have sure. to. I would have to mount exhibitions, what have you. So now I do this. I travel and I play music, and so it works out quite well actually because um, when the semester ends, you know, I, after I turn in grades, then I'm free, and yeah. I'll and I'll come here and and travel and um, so it, it it actually works pretty well. I mean, it's I, I guess it is a little bit unusual. I don't know if there's any other um, instructors out there. there, there there's got to be some. There is. <laughs> um, I met one guy from, I want to say England, at Hard Wax. He was, he was a reputable name. He was kind of in that sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, like that Pearson Sound sort of UK garage techno vibe thing. And he was actually a teacher, and he's you know over the you summer. Know, yeah, you know who else does? Uh, Jeff Derringer. He t- he he's. A, oh, is he? I didn't know that. Yep. yep. Okay. I was originally going to be a teacher for history, and then, um, well, I mean that, as you know, in the United States, education isn't really appreciated as much, and the teachers <laughs> don't make anything. So um, I realized, like two years in, I'm like, I'm going to get thirty something grand a year, like thirty three at that time. And then my job will be on the chopping block for ten years. I I don't know about this. You know what I mean. So then, it's a weird way to to have a career when, um, as you say, it's 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 a it's a um, it, it it's probably at least in the initial stages of it, it can be sort of a precarious career, and you have a lot of um, instructors, professors who they're on what's called the adjunct track and what they're do what they're so they're given a contract per semester mm-hmm. um but it's not a guaranteed thing okay okay so for the adjuncts these are the temporary hires essentially they um try to line up as many classes as they can mm-hmm. and in many cases they will they will have another job on the side um currently i'm teaching full-time um at a college but it's a. It took a while to get to to that point. Yeah. Um, it is. It is difficult, um, and things have. You know, for people who are in Europe, listening, um, you know, we have other issues too in the United States. Not just that, but also Donald Trump. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. It's embarrassing, but um, you know, we have an issue in the United States where students are accruing debt. Um, at a rate that is becoming really a big problem. This, so it, this doesn't happen in Europe because they uh, subsidize education more. Yeah. But we have a lot of students now in the United States who are borrowing tremendous amounts of money to get a four-year degree. I mean, you know, we're getting to, uh, I think, a point where, yeah, I agree with this. There's, there's uh, maybe a change is coming, um, and maybe this is the, uh, the beginning of it. All right, so um, I want to get back to uh, chatting about music a little bit. We already covered the live aspect a bit earlier. You're doing a lot of DJ gigs in, well, only DJ gigs on this trip, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so right now as far as DJing goes, um, I mean, how how has it been for you? Are You, you know, like I, I actually haven't seen you DJ. I've only seen you play live. So, you know, when you do a DJ set, is it a lot of like your own material, or do you try to? Inc- are you keeping up a lot with other records, or? Um, yeah, I'm playing mostly on this tour. Um, 
you know, just a, a selection of records mm-hmm. from lots of different producers and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I brought in a few of my own, um, of course. but it doesn't, it doesn't predominate. Um, but there's some in there. Um, and, uh, I'm still playing vinyl. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do have, um, some things that I bring in that I have cut, um, for me, mm-hmm. um, as like dub plates. Um, and, uh, no, I'm always, you know, man, I'm always buying records. So, you know, nice. I've got a few just in the last few days here. Berlin's got plenty of record shops. <laughs> I spend probably 40 or 50 bucks a week on records at least. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't need to have most of those, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to buying them. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I would say, I mean, is there um, a, I don't know what the good word is for it. Is there like a movement or a kind of, kick you're on right now as far as uh style wise or producers or labels um yeah i mean i um gosh, is that too on the spot I, I should, no no it's cool because sometimes I, people say what's your who are you into right now and i'm like yeah i should have i should have brought my the bag you know with the records um i like the dynamic reflection guys i mm-hmm. just bought one of those um I just bought a record by a producer called Acronym. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot coming out. It's, I mean, this is a really good time, I think. I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, um, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun um, to be able to play all this, like, really new, interesting music. Um, so yeah, I'm always paying attention to what's coming out. And are are you a guy that is more inclined to focus on what's what's new or what's currently happening, or do you get nostalgic and incorporate a lot of stuff from the past? Or are you? Is, we we spoke earlier that we love discogs. I don't know if we're recording yet or not. Um, I mean, are you guys? Are you one of those guys that's always searching back discographies or? or not yeah, so I use discogs a lot. Um, I would say that when I do my um, ambient type podcast mixes mm-hmm. um, that sort of combine experimental and noise and ambient and maybe a little bit of techno. Like I've done probably half a dozen of those in the last few years. Those are the ones where I really try to go back, way back in time. I try to find at least a few things that go back, you know, 25 or 30 years. Because um, I think it's really interesting to show that you know, the history of... And there's some wild shit from back then, Absolutely. too. I mean, yeah. nowadays, um, when it comes to ambient music, a lot of people, um, they'll kind of just hit a couple black keys on the keyboard and join it out, and that's their ambient tune. And generally, that, that sounds pretty good, but some of uh, some of these other acts that were um, making stuff, or not even acts, but just like, you know, like you said, a guy that's kind of working away on a tape-to-tape reel... Um, you know, uh, or even like Brian Eno and stuff like that. It, it was much more, of course it was ambient, but it wasn't just one pad sound. It was it, it oh, yeah. incorporate other elements or even uh, like poetry, but uh, almost on a slightly twisted level rather than like, uh, you know, very slam poetry or whatever they call it right now. Like, I got I to gotta look on the computer quick. Um, there's one that I was turned on to from Eftemin recently. 
-hmm. and like it's just such a strange record I'll look it up on here. Otherwise, I'm going to take forever. Uh, so, basically, you, you have um, how many do you, how many ambient podcasts do you have out there for anybody that's looking to, or where can they look to find those? There was um, the most recent one was um, on Electronic Beats. Um, there was um, one that I did for. Um, the um oh hang on a second i need to look these up too see this is what happens when you get old um <laughs> um it was for the group um in taipei um smoke machine the smoke okay. the smoke machine podcast or i did, did fog machine or smoke machine smoke machine yeah okay um and um there were a few others um because I like to do this where, you know, with those types of podcasts, I kind of like to go back to my roots of college radio and not concentrate on beat mixing and mm -hmm. just have like a flow of, yeah. of interesting music. Um, so, you know, I mean, I have some techno mixes out there as well, but um, it's, I think it's refreshing to do that um, mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a different way. It's, it's quite liberating. Yeah, I mean it, and it. I don't know. As I think every musician out there is always kind of excited to show off um, a part of them that people don't normally get to see. You know, even in in, in rock music or, or whatever, people always like, "Oh, this is what I'm also into. I can do this too." Um, so. Well, remember in the old days when I mean in the U.S., um, you know, we used to have ambient rooms at these raves. Yeah, I never see that anymore. You know, if it started to make a comeback, I want to say like five, six years ago, but it never really fully returned. But in fairness, a lot of the ambient music coming out at the moment isn't that truly amazing. I mean, it's good, but it's, I don't know if it's really enough to captivate a room for hours, but there's still plenty of old stuff that deserves to get played out. So, yeah. Um, you know, actually, uh, Richie Houghton had an ambient room at his enter parties in Ibiza. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, and he would bring in, um, you know, highly reputable names. It would it would differ weekly. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was always like very respectable names. They yeah. would never play in Ibiza otherwise. Yeah. Um, and it was cool. Like, um, I only went to a few of his events when I was there, but uh, you know, the room wasn't giant. It was maybe like. Yeah, maybe the size of my living room here, but, or yeah, it was a little bigger than that. But it was cool because there was a lot of people sitting down in there and enjoying it. And, and yeah. I mean, the room was mostly full. And, uh, you know, I, for that to happen in Ibiza, but nowhere else is kind of unheard of. Or, I mean, it's not unheard of, but it's, it's kind of ridiculous because you would think that's the last place it would happen. But uh, I can also say, it, I mean, it's changing. Like you did Berlin Atonal. That is. That's the primary focus, and that festival is incredible. Um, you know, and actually, I just remembered Chris from Minimal SSG played at Bergein just recently, and I think he was playing oh, did a, a, an eclectic mix of experimental Oh, yeah, well, he, he was in the... Um, that's right. He was in the experimental hall now. Yeah. Because they, uh, they open it for, I want to say, um, only the big parties, which is like New Year's and maybe the, the anniversary party. And... Uh, it's an incredible room, yeah. um, probably one of the coolest looking rooms in the club. And 
you know, on, on that lineup, they had Alessandro Cortini, uh, Chris, um, drum cell is his epoxia, um, name. So it's, it's all like basically ambient or very, um, I don't want to say chill out music, but you know, definitely more on the very low key vibe. Yeah. And, uh, the room's always ram packed for that too. In fact, uh, well, I mean, I, I totally welcome that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a great thing. Cause you know, sometimes maybe it's just me getting slightly older too, but you, you just need a break from getting pummeled with the music. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, in Berlin, fortunately, a lot of these clubs have, you can get away from the music. You can go sit down in a little booth or weird nooks and crannies. But in the States, it's definitely, it's like, it's the same thing. Like if, if your Buffalo Wild Wings or whatever restaurant has 30 TVs with every game on, the <laughs> nightclub is going to have a speaker in every corner to make sure that like your blood's pumping the whole time, uh, yeah. you know, and there's no escape. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so... I don't know. I hope that it. You definitely... have to come to Buffalo to get the real Buffalo wings, though. You, you, is this you... a real deal, or is this? <laughs> no, this is true. Yeah, because it's it's a it's a place called Anchor Bar, and it's the real deal. That's huh? that's where it. Yeah. That's, okay. That's the real stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I actually really like. Well, I've gone vegetarian now, but one thing I really do miss is just going to town on a, a million wings on Tuesdays <laughs> or something. But uh, I think if for whatever reason if i ever end up in buffalo i'd do it i'd give it a shot you know <laughs> but um we're we're get we're coming up here on time so i'm going to check out briefly here um do you have anything that you want to plug as far as new releases or or dates coming up um in the future are you are you doing much in the states at all coming up or sporadically but there's nothing penciled in at the moment that's the United States for you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a um, nutshell. You know, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, well, there's a new record coming out um, from Repitch. Okay. Um, and of course, they're located here in Berlin. Uh, I believe that is March, um, and it's a ten-inch record, a two-track, uh, and uh, so that's the one that's coming up next. Yeah, and you um, recently this uh, Inkblots one that came out. Right. Yeah. That's a kind of a a rare record, if I recall correctly. It's 100 copies or something. Yeah, he did like a special. Um, well, when they contacted me, um, you know, they described the project and they said we want to do something special with the artwork. And so, you know, I agreed. It was very interesting. And so the the process of making the jacket was um, sort of complicated and I think expensive. So they decided to do a very limited run. Um, so it's actually 50 copies. Okay, so it's a very then, boutique yeah. item. Yeah, and then they're going to do another edition um, and to make it more widely available. Yeah, okay. so that, that, would be, that would also be happening later this year. That reminds me because you're also, along with teaching art, you're an artist, uh, painting and whatnot, Painting and drawing, or I thought I recall seeing both, but mostly painting. Uh, drawing and printmaking, mostly works on paper. Okay, and I I know in the past you used to have a bunch of it online. Are you still selling anything like that, or not really at the moment? I've been selling uh, serigraph prints, um, which is the same process as screen printing, mm-hmm. um, and it's also how I make the jackets up for my label. Mm-hmm. And what I've been doing is I've been reproducing 
limited editions of some of the older jackets, but on like really nice art paper. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I, I once in a while I'll get requests, you know, um, and I've been selling those. Uh, one of these days I'm going to put it up online, like in a more official way. Mm-hmm. Is, is it, are they available now on Bandcamp or is there a place where people could check it out or, or no? Not yet. I, you, know, <laughs> you, you caught me there. I really need to do that. Actually, Bandcamp's a good suggestion. I mean, what, what I had done previously was I was just sort of like throwing out um, pictures on Twitter and saying, hey, I've got these prints and then people would contact me. Cool. But I think what I'll do is, yeah, that, that, that should be a project for this year is to sort of make that, um, make that process more accessible to people. Um, and so now that we're recording this, this will force me to. Yeah, do- <laughs> people are going to be emailing you. <laughs> yeah, where are those prints, Mike? Yeah. Well, I I got to know before we also leave because you, you said you're doing seraphine printing. Is that what you said? Uh, it's called serigraph printing. Serigraph. And it's really just a serigraph or a serigraphy is really just the fancy word for screen printing. Yeah, but because I remember when I was in college, I was doing screen printing too, and. The problem that I had with screen printing, maybe just that technology was old, older, is really when you burn in the image to the screen, you lose a lot of the detail. And you're, you have a lot of detail in your artwork with the brush strokes and whatnot. So, I mean, how do you retain that um, when it translates over? It can be done. It has to do with the type of photographic emulsion that you use and also the, uh, the device that you're using to expose it. Um, but you can actually get really good detail. Really? Okay. Yeah. It's not, it, it really depends on um, what you're printing on, um, your ink system and whatnot. Um, but now, I mean, with serigraphy, you can, you can get really, really good detail. Um, and even um, like hairline detail now. Uh, wow. If, if you, there's something called ultraviolet ink, which I don't use for my work, but... Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a kind of ink that allows, um, you to get really, really fine detail. Excellent. To- yeah. Cause that's when you, when you mentioned you were doing it that way and I thought about it, I'm like, I tried it and I got horrible detail. Like I could do, you know, the, the line art basically, mm-hmm. but anything that where you have some sort of like, uh, where it starts to get, uh, like a masking, like a transparency or something, a gradient, it, you would lose, uh, lose out on that. But I mean, again, this was uh, 2002, and I was, it was at a community college, so it just wasn't the greatest, uh, you know, technology. And, and I sometimes community so. colleges have really good studios, um, but uh, I, I think it it all boils down to the application of what you're doing. Like I'm printing on um, cardboard jackets. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a limit to the detail that I can get. Um, but it we you know you can you can you can get a really good sort of um, gradient if you if you do it correctly and um, I think uh, probably you know if he, if I were to oh man if I were to count how many of these things I've printed you know because every single one of them is printed by hand yeah so like on my label like every jacket's been printed by hand so what I do is you know. When I do an edition of these things, I take two Advil, and then I just go. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's you know, it, it it's it is physically tiring. Yeah, I can imagine. You got to stand there and just move it the whole time, and you oh, want to yeah. line it up, and yeah, yeah. You have but a registration that's... system, but once you get set up, you're good to go. But man, it's it's tiring. 
because mm-hmm. every single one's pulled by hand. That's why you got to pull those kids aside. Be like, you want to make some extra credit the hard way? Well, and then- <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I will have a student that will assist me um, when I'm um, printing an edition. Yeah. Okay. So you're on it already. <laughs> yeah. Cool. But this is, again, this is a good thing with, you know, when you, you when you're teaching, um, you have a studio and you have um, people uh, around you that are interested in the process. and. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I really, I, I like being in the university environment. Um, and then what I do here with the music, it just, it really complements it. And so for the time being, you know, as long as, as people will have me, um, you know, I, I like doing it this way. I can't argue it. I mean, to be, to, you know, you're able to do what you want creatively, both in the workforce and, um, I don't want to call this a career or a hobby, but as a musician in your craft, let's put it that way. And I think a lot of people would kill for just one of those opportunities. You got both, you know, so that's, that's a great thing. And as you said, it took time to work up to that, but it seems like it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we mentioned, um, you know, Chris from minimal SSG and I have to say, I can't remember if it was 2007 or 2008, I think that's that was actually a turning point for me in my in my music career. Was yeah. that when I when I posted that um, when I was invited to to do a mix for mm-hmm. for minimal SSG that first one especially. That's when things really started to change. I, I, I noticed that. Yeah, and, and you know then I got signed to Prologue, and you know that was when you know that was the turning point. Even though up to that time I had already been releasing you know, records for many years. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I was releasing stuff on my own label for a long time. And I was, they were all getting pressed at Archer in Detroit. Yeah. And, you know, I would press 300, 400 copies of whatever. And, you know, I would send them out to Watts, my distributor at that time, and they would sell. um, But I wouldn't really hear that much. You know, I mean, once in a while I would get some feedback from somebody, you know, I'd get like an email or something, but, you know, I wasn't really sure what was, was happening with mm-hmm. who was playing my stuff or whatever. And that things changed, I think. Um, the music changed too. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think that that, you know, the, the, the minimal SSG, um, that project, I guess if you call mm-hmm. it a project, that I think had a lot to do with um, my evolving here um, in this. In the, in I this think scene. so. You know, I mean, like sometimes it's in a culmination of things. Like I've seen it with other producers where it's kind of they got their thing going on, and then all of a sudden it just snowballs quickly at once. You were saying right around that time that mix came out, you signed a prologue. I also got a track from you, and like those were all things that were kind of happening in the background yet. So um, I think a lot of people just kind of like in my instance, I was like, man, this guy's just got a lot of crazy back catalog records. I want to have him on board for this compilation and, you know, prologue. I'm not sure how they were turned on to you, but you know what I mean? So it's like a lot of these people just kind of got the similar idea at once, be it from the mix or wherever they were getting their influence from. And, I noticed that, you know, like 2008, 10, it really, you started 
popping out a lot of records and you're touring quite a bit more. So sometimes it's just the music's got to catch up. To That's right. Where a person's at, you know. And and I would say, you know, to to younger producers, um, you know, m- make a track and then maybe release it, put out a record or what have you. Whatever happens, make another track mm-hmm. and release that. And and you know, don't don't even stop really to think about you know what happened. Um, you just got to just keep making stuff because that's how I was doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, I always said, you know, from the beginning, like the whole reason I started, um, releasing records was so I could play them. Yeah. Same here. I, you know, so it's like, um, you know, you don't need much more of a reason than that really. Well, the reason a lot of people make records is so they can get gigs and not even necessarily play them and that's where the problem lies you know what i mean um which i mean we all want gigs so i don't blame them for that but as, that should be the reason so you should be excited to have this record and, and play it if you're a dj some of them aren't djs but yeah um, unfortunately a lot of people just want it for the gigs and not necessarily to play them out or um you know chase this artistic vision they have and that's but ultimately i think those that's one of the things that kind of is a natural filter for people. You know what I mean? It, if you're not really going to be in it for the love, well, that, that's not true because there's a lot of people that love this music and it's just, I mean, they're passionate. They want nothing more than even just a DJ at a bar in their town once a month and it's just not going to happen because they maybe don't have the talent or they don't have the time to invest in building their talent. But, so I wouldn't, yeah. There's a lot of people that that love the music for sure that won't get that chance. But you, bottom line, you have to have that regardless, and not worry about the rest. Yeah, you know? and 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 you know, to the extent that um, you know, you might even lose some money here and there. I mean, God, you know, I I think I I probably you know the first ten releases, um, I either broke even. Mm-hmm. Or lost at least a little bit of money yeah. on those on those records, and I, you know, um, and I didn't really have a huge demand. That's why there's, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's why there's there. I mean, some of the back catalog now is they're kind of rare now because I only pressed three hundred way yeah. back then, um, and I, you know, I definitely lost money on on the album that I did back in two thousand one, um, and that was a weird time period because I, I was working on the album preparing it all throughout the summer of 2001 and and then September 11 happened and see, I mean, you remember how things were the oh, pe- yeah. people were so depressed and it was just like you know the mood was so bad you know and it was a terrible time to release a minimal techno record oh yeah it was a terrible or, time to do anything music yeah related. totally but you know the thing is though I, I mean I had put so much time into it I said to myself you know maybe I could delay it but you know what I'm just gonna go ahead and release it Mm-hmm. And I did, and of course it lost some money. But you know, those it, in those days, it wasn't about that. It was about me putting my vision out there. Um, and since that time, you know, I've I've remastered that album. It's on Bandcamp now. So there's, um, you know, there's new people finding it. There's new, you know, um, younger audiences that are you know hearing that. Um, and I played some of those tracks. 
uh, at atonal. So, um, you know, your, your your impulse to um, create is the number one concern. It's not about how many units you sell or anything like that. It's you know you should be, you know, the you know the first record comes out, you're already thinking about number two. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Because in its own way, it is a, a weird addiction. But that's, I mean, if it's, a, if, it's, if it's compulsive, and I guess to some degree, I, I would have to say, I think, I think all DJs have some, you know, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. A lot of people in music do. Um, that's okay, actually, if it's creative. I mean, if, it, yeah. if, I mean, if, you, if, you, had a, if you had a compulsion that was destructive... You know, let's say you were addicted to like gambling or something. You know, like that mm-hmm. would be, that's not good. But if it's music, I would say it's mostly good. I mean, I've seen the dark side of it too. I mean, there's that there is that element of it. I mean, you can get caught up too much in anything, and and to the extent that it might affect other parts of your life in a bad way, then it's then you know you need to slow down. But I would say that um, you know, um, doing something creative is totally worth it and if if it's if it's going to be you know um if you if you do 200 copies of a white label or something and you get satisfaction from having your track pressed in that way do it i mean yeah hey maybe you lose a little bit of money whatever or maybe you break even just do it i think yeah i mean i think in the end like Sure, maybe you might be depressed if you end up eating a hundred of those copies, but for the most part the it's it's I think it's that human desire to accomplish something. You could say the same thing like if you're not really a handyman but you fix something around the house and you feel like a badass for the rest of the day because you're like, yeah, I didn't have to call anybody, but um while it's really a small victory, you succeeded in finishing that task, and whereas to put out a record or even to go out and buy a canvas and just paint something for the hell of it. I think at the end of it, you're like, okay, I feel like I've, I have a sense of accomplishment here, as opposed to just turning on Netflix for the night and zoning out and not facing that creative urge you have. You know what I mean? I think that's why a lot of guys, you know, there's the old stereotype of you got the American male that wants to be out in the garage working on the car in the wood shop, <laughs> and I mean, it's a, it is still a creative thing. Maybe it's yeah. you can't get so creative under the hood, but you can, uh, you know, the the it's the process that you appreciate, you know? Yeah. So, well, I mean, I wish I had 100 copies of some of those older records that I did. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, because, I mean, they're gone. I mean, the back catalog, I mean, some of those records I might have, like, maybe just one or two it's just as part of my archive. You know, I mean, I, uh, people contact me, actually, on Discogs sometimes, saying, hey, do you have number five or whatever? I'm like, no way, man. Those are gone. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> if you have an extra one, give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Send them here. <laughs> yeah i don't know i i checked out some of my recent records lately you know and they're not fetching super high prices compared to some of these things you read but they'd be like oh yeah my record was or you know you hear about records going for 100 bucks or something and one of my records is like 29 bucks and i'm like hmm i mean first of all i was like surprised that somebody wouldn't want to spend 29 bucks on my music because i don't think it's worth 29 bucks but then the other part of me is like why isn't it like a hundred you know what i'm saying (laughs) so (laughs) but uh well again a lot of it is um 
you know, how many you pressed back in the day. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, in the old days, um, you know, it wasn't a problem for me to call up uh, Archer and be like, hey, I need, you know, 200 white labels of, or, um, for this, uh, you know, this uh, repress. Mm-hmm. Now, if I called them, they would probably, like a lot of the other pressing plants, I mean, they're really backed up. And it's getting more. I mean, we need actually, a actually, run that's something that. we haven't really talked about too much. Um, is uh, is pressing vinyl in in, in the current climate is, is is really really kind of difficult. At least in the U.S., it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's getting more difficult because the technology is going away. The people aren't there. Aren't people that are as interested in the craft anymore? So it's just it's a dying industry for various reasons. Uh, more importantly, um, but there's this new demand, though. There is the demand, and because of that demand, bigger labels take notice. So you have people like Universal or, or whatever pop music labels, and they're pressing up. The, you know, they're repressing Joy Division albums and uh, selling at Urban Outfitters. So all of us little guys, whether it's pop, punk, hip hop, um, techno, you name it, we all get shelved because they pay enough money to get ahead in the queue. And when Record Store Day comes around, I was telling uh, my friends at dinner last night. I'm like, you got to get your records. For before summer, they got to be in in the next two to three weeks because yeah, you're going to get hit day. with this weight because you know they're going to be repressing Pink Floyd and stuff for yeah. the next three months, and uh, so yeah, it's really hard to do it. A because the industry is dying with the technology and the people that are knowledgeable about it, and B because when there is the opportunity, it's being seized still by major labels. Yeah, I've been given some. Um, some hope though. Um, I, I don't, I guess I don't want to really say it on, you know, on, on record here, but, um, apparently there are some, uh, some steps being taken to improve the situation in North America. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I've been hearing some things. I mean, you know, we're still waiting to kind of see this all come online, but I think, like I said, the, the demand for vinyl is there and there are some people right now, apparently who are poised to, um, help correct the situation. Yeah, I've, I've heard a few random different stories, different groups of people lately. One of the more interesting ones that I heard about, maybe it was even a year and a half, two years ago now, but within the last year or two, uh, someone bought a warehouse and they found 13, um, and it wasn't Lay's, it was actual printing presses for records in uh, in in the warehouse. So... They and they already had, I think, like ten or something like that. So they effectively doubled the entire size of their business. And of course, those machines are older, so they need to be repaired a bit. But yeah. you know, you're looking at twenty five presses and from one company just in the states alone, which is a lot for anybody who doesn't know about the record industry. So well, hopefully they set aside one just for for us. <laughs> that would be nice, right? <laughs> it would be fair, you know. But uh, I think we're going to check out here. I got to hit the, hit the road. But it was really great to have you around. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we've been in contact for years, but we never really got to sit down and chat. So yeah. it's kind of a good first time here. Uh, have fun in Leipzig and hope to see you back this summer. Cool. See you. All right. Take care.